is happening is this wild game feast, and you may have heard some things about that. Uh, this is designed explicitly as an evangelistic event, and we will have uh, we'll have some seminars. In fact, uh, Rob is going to do a seminar on archery and tuning your bow and so forth. So if you're into archery, bring your bow. You'll have an opportunity to uh, to work on that with him. Rob really is an expert on that kind of stuff, and. Um, We'll, we will have, obviously, the meal. We'll need your help with that. Uh, some of you ladies don't know, don't know anything about deer meat, but you do know about pie, and we are going to need some of those baked. And uh, we're going to need some help setting up and tearing down. And we're going to need, above all, uh, you all to invite your friends and neighbors and coworkers and so forth who need to hear the gospel and to uh, participate with them in the event so that they will uh, have an opportunity to hear about Jesus, because that's our goal above all. So uh, I think we're going to be limited to about 100 people, uh, because I think that's about all we can hold in this room uh, for the meal. So that's the plan, and uh, there'll be sign-up sheets and so forth available next Sunday to help in various ways. Uh, We'll have well, we should have tickets on sale shortly after that. There'll be prizes we'll give away. This will be a fun event. So um, you can start talking it up to your friends and neighbors and family. Uh, it'll be February the 8th. Uh, tickets will be 20 bucks a piece. Okay? We've got to cover some of our costs on that. So uh, in any case, look forward to that. That's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. Uh, one of the other things that's coming up, January 12th, our small groups kick off again. Now, raise your hand if you're in a small group. Okay? All right. Now, um, small groups are a lot of fun. They really are. And they're a huge blessing to the people who are in them. If you're not in a small group, maybe you were looking around and saw all those hands go up, and you thought, you know, I should get in one of these. And you should. And January 12th will be a good opportunity for you to plug into one. Uh, they're sermon-based small groups, which what that means is, is that if you were here for the service, you're all caught up on what we're going to talk about at small groups. All right? Uh, if you weren't there for the service, you can jump on the website and listen to the sermon, and they're going to talk about the same passage I talk about here on Sunday morning or whoever is speaking that day. Uh, that's the that's the program is to talk about what we've already looked looked at together in the scriptures. So uh, there's an opportunity to pray, an opportunity to build relationships. In my small group, we eat together. Uh, we have lunch uh, right over there um, dur- during uh, during our right after service wraps up. We go over there, we set up, we have lunch, we have study, we pray together. It's a great time. So anyway, if you're looking for a small group. To join, uh, there we'll have information about that this next Sunday about the various groups that are available and where they meet and who to contact. So um, consider that as well. Now this week, uh, we you know last week we looked at Micah's predictions of the coming of the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign of the Messiah on the earth. Uh, that the the kingdom is coming and that it will be a time of peace 
and a time when not only will there be no war, people won't even read about it because everybody will be at peace and everyone will dwell in safety and God himself will dwell in Jerusalem and reign from there as king. And it will be a unique time. This week we're going to learn some more about the king. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, you got your Bible, I want you to go to Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Micah, chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 2. All right? And we're just going to start specifically with verse 2, which talks about the birth of Messiah. Now, this is a familiar verse. You've probably heard this before. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, where have you heard that before? Uh, every time you read the Gospel of Matthew around Christmas time, you hear those that verse. Uh, whenever you hear about the wise men and they come to King Herod and they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Because they're expecting that, hey, the king is supposed to reign in Jerusalem, so where is he at? And uh, he's not in Jerusalem. And Herod gathers the wise men around and he says, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Where is the newborn king going to be? In Bethlehem. How do we know? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, the Messiah is to be born. And so that's where the wise men all head off, right? And looking back on that, it all makes sense to us. We go, well, of course, he has to be born in Bethlehem because that's where those who uh, are the sons of David are from. You know, that they've got to come from Bethlehem or, or at least from Ephrathah, the region around it. Uh, that seems like a natural spot. But in fact, if you actually know some things about this area and this little town, it hardly seems like that kind of a place. Because it's an insignificant little spot in every way, except one. It's the kind of place, um, it's so small... It's so small that as Micah is written, it's not even listed anywhere in the Scriptures as being among the towns that were part of the inheritance of Judah. In Joshua chapter 15, you get this long list of all the places and the boundaries of the land of Judah. You know, that all of the tribes of Israel, as they took the land from the Canaanites, uh, are given their tribal allotments, and this many cities for Simeon, and this many for Issachar, and this for Zebulun, and this for Manasseh, and these for Ephraim, and so forth. And Judah, in chapter 15, gets their whole list, and they get this extensive territory. They're one of the major tribes of the nation of Israel. But this one is just this little dinky spot in the road. You know, if we're talking local geography, it's not even Sparland. I mean, it's little, okay? It's a wide spot in the road. Sparlin has a light. 
<laughs> okay, this isn't even a place with a light. This is little. This is, this is blink and you miss it. It's a few houses, like Hillbilly Hollow up here. You know, it's, it's just, just not even a town hardly. And that's what he's talking about when he says, though, you're too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. He means you're just not even really a town. You just happen to be a little area that people refer to as a town. It's, but it's significant for one reason and one reason only, that it is the hometown of David, the king of Israel, and he is the king with whom God made an eternal covenant. Second Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. And he says, I am, you are always going to have one of your descendants to sit on your throne. To the extent that there is a kingdom of Israel, there will always be a descendant of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem there. Now, since the exile, there has not been a Davidic king reigning in Israel. But God says through Micah, there's going to be a Davidic king. And he's going to have some, some unique things about him. That he's going to, he's going to, first of all, he's going to come forth. He's going to, which is an unusual way to describe a king being born. Not the normal pattern. And part of that, I think, is a hint that this guy has some different origins than normal kings. He's going to come forth. And he's going to come forth, God says, for me. You know, lots of times a king rules for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that kings like to rule is for themselves. There are lots of benefits that accrue to being the king. You get to tell people what to do among them, right? Um, one of the reasons that guys in Washington like the positions that they have is that people address them as senator or congressman or madam secretary or however, right? And there is power that goes along with that. And as they are there a long time, one of the things that they forget is that they are there for me, right? They're there to represent us. And they, we, they are our representatives and they don't rule us, they represent us, right? They are not there of their own initiative, they're there because we put them there. And who is sovereign in the United States is the people, right? At least theoretically, <laughs> right? In theory, that's how it works. God says, this guy is going to be there for me. He's not going to be there for himself. He's not going to be there just because he happens to be next in line in a, on a hereditary system, he is going to be there specifically to rule and to reign for me. He's going to be God's representative. And on top of that, he says his origins, his coming forth is from of old. Now that is a really interesting Hebrew word that's there. It generally refers to ancient historical time. 
But it's also the term that the prophets use to refer to God as being eternal, as existing before time. So as an example, uh, Habakkuk in uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 describes God as being from of old. He says, are you not from everlasting? Are you not from of old? In other words, weren't you here since forever? And uh, the, second, uh, the second phrase uh, is from ancient days. And that almost always in Hebrew refers to ancient history. So the reason I bring this up is this. Is that I think Micah is hinting here in chapter 5 verse 2. I think he's giving us a hint about the dual nature of this Messiah. That he is on the one hand going to be descended from ancient days. From, from an ancient line. From the line of David. And that's the reason Bethlehem is significant. That's the reason that he's saying, look, this is going to, that the ancient line of David is going to continue. But he also says his coming forth, again, unusual way to describe being born, is from of old. In other words, he is eternal like God is. And so he's not an ordinary king. He is someone who existed before there was time and yet is born of David. So he is, as the scripture says in Romans, son of David, but also son of God. Amen? He's an unusual king. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the promised king is both God and son of David. Now, um, That is, see, John, where am I? I got lost. All right, we're going to move on. Verse 3 says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Now, here's what's going on in Micah's day. In, in Micah's day, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive, and they were exiled to the nation of Assyria. They were, they were taken back, uh, and, and most of them never made it back to Israel, by the way. They were scattered. And the southern kingdom, Judah, where Micah lives, is basically a va- what's called a vassal kingdom or a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire. What that means is, is that every year you pay tribute to your overlord, which is, to put it in modern terms, it's protection money, 
basically. This is a shakedown. And you pay us, and we, we don't take you over and take you into exile. And so Hezekiah, uh, one of the kings uh, uh, during, the reign of, during the prophecy of Micah, um, Hezekiah actually has so much gold he has to come up with, he actually strips all the gold out of the temple and out of all the king's treasuries. He takes it off of the doors, off of everything, to be able to pay off the Assyrians and keep them out. And this promise is being made in the midst of all of this terrible, negative stuff that's happening. Of a king that's coming, and he's saying, and by the way, this idea of the Assyrians coming into our land, that's real. That's happened. That's occurring, even as this is written. And God is making them some magnificent promises about the reign of the Messiah. And he tells us uh, both when Messiah's reign will begin and what it will look like. And if you look at verse uh, 3 there, it talks about he will give them up until she who is in in labor has given birth. Now, I think she who is in labor is not Mary. Don't think that's Mary that he's talking about. I think he's talking about the nation as a whole. Because earlier in chapter 4, which is part of the same sermon that Micah is giving, he refers to in verse 9 and 10, the nation as like a woman in labor. And he says, you're going to go into exile and all this is going to happen and it's going to be painful like a woman in labor. And I think he is talking about, by using that analogy he's talking about the nation's exile and dispersion as being like a woman in labor and in a way i think the nation's labor is still ongoing after the nation was exiled first the northern kingdom in 722 bc and then later the southern kingdom went to babylon in 586 bc only a portion of the people really come back Some members of the tribe of Judah, members of the tribe of Levi, members of the tribe of Benjamin, probably some Simeonites because they intermixed with the people of Judah. Uh, You meet a few northern kingdom tribesmen here and there. You know, as an example, in Luke 2, you meet Anna, the prophetess, who's hanging out at the temple, and she's of the tribe of Asher. But but realistically speaking, the majority of the Jewish people are dispersed throughout the Middle East. And by the way, they are still dispersed. The largest Jewish city, city in the world is still New York City. It's not in Israel. There are about 6 million Jews out of a population of about 8 million in the uh, nation of Israel. But there are 8 million Jews that live outside of Israel. And the people have not been regathered. And so I would say that in a sense, she who is in labor, that is the nation of Israel, is still in labor. And that God, as he says here, has given them up until the time of the, re- of the birth of the nation comes. And uh, when that ends, when Messiah, it will, that'll end when Messiah comes. 
And when he comes, the dispersion will end, and he says the rest of his brothers will return home. So Messiah is coming when the dispersion ends and Jews flock home. And when that occurs, the Messiah King is going to reign over the nation. That did not happen with Jesus' first coming. Amen? He rode in on his donkey, and the nation largely rejected him. Though they, though they sang Hosanna, though they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, five days later they crowned him with thorns, not with a crown. Flogged him and hung him on a tree, and left him to die on Passover Friday. He was not received as king. But when he comes back, he will be received as king, and he will reign over the nation. And after that, there will never be another exile or a dispersion again. It says here that they will dwell, verse 4, they will dwell secure. Why? Because he will be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. You go to Israel today, what's the one thing they want more than anything? Peace. Be left alone. Be at peace. That in the midst of a hostile area, they just want to be left alone. Not to be invaded anymore. Not to be shot rockets at on a daily basis. Just to be at peace. But they will not be at peace until the Prince of Peace comes, until He is received as Lord and God King. And in verse 5 and 6, Micah gives us some examples of what His reign will look like. And he says, he's picking a contemporary example. He says, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, which happened in Micah's day, Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes, and he will shepherd the land of Assyria. The land of Assyria is modern-day Iran. The land of Nimrod. Um, He says, when these people come and attack, then rather than them ruling over us, we will rule over them. Uh, I don't know what contemporary significance that might have. I think, honestly, I think as you look at this text, I think that Micah is picking the Assyrians because they're the most powerful people of his day, and he is uh, indicating to them the kind of rule that Messiah will have, that the most powerful of their enemies will be defeated, and that they will be at peace and dwell in safety and won't have any worry about their neighbors and being attacked from outside. And so I think Assyria is meant as a figure rather than as a literal description of a literal place and people. Nevertheless, they're going to dwell in safety and they won't be attacked because they will be the nation from which the Messiah King rules. And they won't be having to worry about it anymore. And the reign of Messiah will include not just 
defeat of enemies, it'll also include the exaltation and the purification of the nation itself. So I want to show you that here, verses 7 to 15. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Now, the remnant is the typical term among the prophets for the believing members of the people of Israel. And their faith, Micah says, is going to make them as influential and as refreshing as the dew. Uh, In Israel, they have two seasons. You know, just like in Illinois, we have two seasons, winter and road construction. Um, in, in Israel, they have two seasons, a rainy season and a dry season. The rainy season is October through March. The dry season, they don't get a lot of rain. And what they have and what they're dependent on to a degree for the growing of crops during those months is the dew. And the dew enables, it's, if it's heavy enough, it enables crops to nevertheless grow. And it's, ref- and it's just like it's, it's refreshing and it nourishes those plants. And he says that you're going to be like, as people, you're going to be exalted and you're going to be refreshing and influential like the dew of heaven. And on top of that, um, look, at, look at how the dew is described. It says that it's like like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of man. Uh, can you do anything as a human being to affect the dew from forming? No. It's going to happen. Why? Because it's God's world, and He has made it so. In the same way, this is going to happen for the nation, that they're going to be refreshing and influential among the peoples of the world because God is causing it to happen. And on top of that, they're going to not just be life-giving to the other nations around them, they'll also be powerful, like a lion compared to a flock of sheep. Now, how many of you have been to the zoo and seen a lion? Now, they are an intimidating animal, amen? When you look into those yellow eyes, they look back at you and they say, lunch, right? This is an intimidating, scary, powerful beast. It is not for no reason that people call him the king of the, uh, the, king of the beast, the king of the forest. He is an amazing animal. 
No one, on the other hand, I've been around a lot of sheep. My, my dad raises them, and I get to help him sometimes when I go home. No one ever has an attack sheep. No one ever puts up signs in their yard that says, Warning, beware of sheep. I mean, you might want to watch where you step, but that's about the biggest risk that you're going to come into when it comes to sheep. Okay? They are scared motherless. Uh, every time that you walk into the pasture, they're like, whoa, a person. <laughs> okay. Uh, and if a, if a predatory animal gets around sheep, they're totally terrified. Okay. I can't, I've ne- we don't have, we're kind of short on lions over in Indiana. Uh, I don't know how the sheep react in the presence of one of those. I can't imagine. But the nation is going to be powerful. As powerful as a lion amidst a flock of sheep. If you set a lion loose in the pasture, I can guarantee you that what the outcome will be. And it will not be positive for the sheep. And if you look at the nation of Israel even today with all their military prowess, and they are a skillful nation as far as their army goes, they're still relatively speaking, small and weak. It's only 8 million people in the whole country. The widest, at, the, at the narrowest point, the nation is only 9 miles wide. And they're surrounded on all sides by people who refuse to even recognize their legitimate existence as a nation and who use uh, peace talks as an opportunity for arming for war. But one day, Micah says, when Messiah comes, all their enemies are going to be cut off and none are going to dare attack her any more than a a sheep looks at a lion and goes, hey, what's up? Come on, let's dance. (laughs) You know, they're not going to do that, okay? Why? Because they're going to recognize that Messiah reigns here. And the nation is exalted. And the nation will finally be secure and peace and at peace and strong and strongly protected and exalted instead of weak and vulnerable. And when Messiah reigns, he will also purify the nation of everything they trusted in instead of him. If you read this description, uh, verses 10 to 14, you start talking, God starts speaking about all the things he's going to cut off. And you're like, what do you got against horses and chariots? What's the problem with cities? And the deal is, is this, is that God had told them, you're to put your trust in me and not in yourself and not in what you're able to do. And so he commands the king in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he says, you're not to multiply wives to yourself, you're not to multiply silver and gold to yourself, you're not to multiply horses and chariots to yourself. Now, think back on the kingship of Solomon. What did he have? A lot of. Women, gold, and horses. Okay, He violated everything the law of God said. And every king after him was trying to do the same thing. And they were, not, he was, they were also specifically commanded, as far as horses and chariots went, you're not to go down to Egypt to get more of these things. Why? Because Egypt is the land of idolatry. 
And he says, I don't want you influenced anymore by those people and all their idolatry. What did Solomon do? He not only went down to Egypt and got more horses and chariots, he opened up trade with them and married an Egyptian woman. And that wasn't so bad, except that she was an idolater and she wanted to worship her pagan god. And so Solomon built her a temple in Jerusalem for her pagan god. And the king of Israel introduced idolatry into the nation. And along with it, a whole host of other stuff. And the nation began to put its trust in horses and chariots rather than in the Lord to deliver it from battle. And the nation also began to build up these fortified cities and strongholds and to put their trust in them. Well, we can't be defeated because after all, I mean, we've got walls and we've got chariots, which are the ancient equivalent of like tanks. You know, they could just mow through a whole group of guys on foot. And so we've got that, so we don't need to trust the Lord anymore. And on top of that, we've got some other things. We've got sorcery. We've got guys who can who with we've got guys with power over the natural world and we can go and consult them and we can, you know, take the entrails out of this goat and he can tell us the future and tell us what's going to happen by the look on the liver of this thing. Um, you know, we've got We've got tellers of fortunes, we've got witches, we've got sorcerers, we've got all these people who can access the demonic realm and they can therefore uh, enable us to have power over our enemies. God says, when Messiah reigns, I'm cutting off that stuff. I'm cutting off everything that you rely on instead of me. I'm going to make sure that you don't have strongholds that you trust in. I'm going to make sure that you don't have sorcery and witchcraft and tellers of fortune among you. He says, I'm going to cut off your carved images and pillars and, and you won't bow down anymore to the work of your hands. You know, that is really stupid. Have you ever thought about that? Guy goes out to the forest with an axe. He cuts down a tree. And then he takes it to a wood shop. And they, you know, get the carving knives out and so forth. And they go, well, now we've got to be careful which end of this we carve on. I mean, we've got to get the best looking chunk here. And uh, we carve this out. And, you know, one end of it, Isaiah says, you use for fire to warm yourself. The other end, you carve into a god and you bow down and worship it. I mean, you've got to be an expert in stupidity to think that something you chopped out of a log is something that influences your life. And yet, nevertheless, people did that, and people do that. Maybe they don't you know, bow down to Asherah, as the people of Israel did. That's what these carved images and Asherah images and so forth, what they had was a, one of the more popular religions in Israel, other than the worship of the true God, was the worship of Baal and his consort Asherah. And it was a fertility cult. Uh, with everything that that implies, and sacred prostitutes, and a whole mess. And God says, I'm going to get rid of all that. All these other gods, all these other things you put your trust in when Messiah reigns, all that will be wiped out. 
all the worship of false deities, all the worship of, of things that you have made yourself, I'm going to get rid of it all. And you will worship me alone, and I will judge, verse 15, those who disobeyed and rejected me. And the only God who, is, who will be worshipped is the true and living one. There won't be any more Buddhism. There won't be any more Umbanda or Voodoo or Psychic Hotline or any of that. It'll all be gone. All these things are variants on the same thing. That me, by my effort, by my ability to access some power, my ability to make something of myself, I'm going to by I'm going to run my own life. And I'm not going to have to depend on the Lord for any of it. And by the way, we're not Israelites. Amen. I, I'm looking around, I don't see too many Jews uh here in the room, right? So these things don't in some in some fashion apply to us directly in that we are going to enjoy the reign of Messiah, but not as members of the nation of Israel, but as members of the church of which Jesus Christ is head. But, nevertheless, God wants to root out the same kinds of things in us that he wants to root out of his people here. I I hope none of you call the psychic hotline. I hope none of you go to the tarot reader and have your fortune read. Uh, or anything foolish like that. And I certainly hope none of you has a little statue that you're making sacrifices to in your house. You know, a little Ganesh idol or something. I hope you're not doing that. If you are doing that, talk to me. Because this is a problem. You cannot continue to do that and worship the living God at the same time. But lots of us try to do other things and worship the true God at the same time. And this is where that bit about the work of your hands comes in. Maybe you don't go down and chop down a cottonwood tree and worship it as an idol. But you do erect other things in your life. So you, some of us, take really good things that God has given as gifts and we bow down to them. Maybe even our children. Maybe our spouse. And we give all the energy and all of the parts of our heart that should rightfully belong to the Lord and to Him alone. And we look to those things for happiness. Now, I'm a big proponent of being married. I've been married almost 18 years. Uh, I wish it was 19. I'm serious. I, I, if I had it to do over again, I'd have got engaged about a year sooner and got married. Uh, I love being married. I love my kids. But I can't make my life be defined by my wife or by my children and look to those things as the source of ultimate meaning and purpose in my life that which gives it value. Because what gives my life value is not my family relationships, it's my relationship with God. Amen? 
The same thing is true about a job. A job is a good thing. If you don't have one, you need to get one. Right? Unless you're retired and then you're done, you've done your deal. Okay? But if you if you're of working age and able-bodied, you should work. Right? Whatever God has called you to do, if it's if it's in mothering, then be a great mom. If it's in working outside the home, then work outside the home and work with all your heart and serve the Lord in that job. But you can't get your identity and your meaning and your value and your significance out of that job. Because at the end of the day, it's just a job. It's just a way to make a living. It's not a life. And lots of people get wrapped up into the idolatry of work. As if this is the thing which is the most significant about life. Lots of people do the same thing with their possessions. Amen? They, they assign a value way out of proportion to the actual eternal significance of it to their stuff. And, you know, when there's natural disasters that hit, you know, people say, well, you know, we lost everything, but we haven't lost the most important thing. And if they actually think that, that's good. But a lot of us in our heart of hearts, if, all, if our house were to burn down to ashes tomorrow, we would feel a humongous loss. Even if all the people escaped. Even if our relationship with God remains intact. When you make a good thing into an ultimate thing, you've produced an idol. You've made it a god thing. And whether you realize it or not, you worship and serve it. And God says, among my people, I allow no other competitor. So let me just ask you a couple questions here as we wrap up. Verse 15 says, In anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. That's not, that's not places on a map. That's people. And specifically people who rejected God. And since judgment is coming against everybody who rejects Jesus as King and Messiah, it's time for some of us in this room to make some decisions about that because God is a God of love and of great compassion and mercy and grace amen but he is also a God of justice and of judgment and of as the scripture says here vengeance and you get to choose you get the glorious dignity of being allowed to choose which you will have whether it will be mercy or whether it will be justice and the way that you choose is by deciding what you were going to do with the promised king who is coming, who is going to establish a kingdom, who is going to reign from Jerusalem, who is going to establish peace for not only his people, but for the entire world, by force if necessary. He is coming. And he is coming either as, as a merciful savior or as judge. And you get to choose which category you would like to be in. And so if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, 
If you have never said, yes, I will bow my knee, I will bow my head, I will bow my heart, I will bow my life to him as king. And I will receive him as Lord and Savior who died on the cross for my sins, who was raised from the dead. If you've never done that, never put your trust in Jesus as, as your Savior, as your King, as your Messiah, who saves you from sin and from its consequences of death and hell and judgment of God. If you've never done that, today is the day. Make that decision. And I know that in this room there are people who have never made that decision. I know there are. I've talked with some of you. Today is the day. Today is the day to turn God's wrath toward you into mercy. Today is the day to receive love instead of justice. Today is the day to have grace instead of vengeance. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and be welcomed into the family of God and receive the Lord's coming as exciting, as a blessing, as something to anticipate with eagerness rather than as something to dread and fear. But for the rest of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, there's another question that rises up out of this passage for me too, and that is this. Is there anything in my life, is there anything in my life, any pieces of my heart, where something other than Jesus occupies a space that only Jesus could fill? Is there something in my life, anything? Could be a girl, could be a guy, could be a checkbook, could be a job, could be some kind of possession or other, could be a relationship of any kind, really. Could be just my own pride and my own selfishness and my own desire to get what I want. Is there anything in your heart, in your life, that rather than submit to Jesus, you have kept back from him and said, you can, have, you can be Lord of everything else, but not this. This is mine. And if you have one of those little areas of your life, would you give it to him today? Because he's coming as king. And he is going to be Lord of all things. We might as well get ready for that now by giving him everything that already belongs to him. Amen? We belong to him, first of all. And the kingdom has already come in some sense in us. We give him everything that he might have dominion over you. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I have done my best here to explain the scriptures and to make clear what the coming of Messiah and the reign of Messiah will involve. Father, I pray that he would reign first and most in us. And until the day 
that our Messiah King is visible, that he would be visible in his people, in the way that they live their lives, in the way that his reign is established in this place among these, your people. Father, I pray that we would reflect the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord of all things by making him Lord of all things in us. Pray in Jesus.